Welcome back to 90 Days New. Today we are concluding the book of Mark, and so we're going to spend just a few moments talking about the final chapter of Mark, and then we are going to be diving into James. Uh, I will make a quick mention of the fact that in the reading plan, I left out one chapter of the entire New Testament, and it is James chapter 5. Uh, for some reason, I only put four chapters there. So as you're reading through, make sure you include James chapter 5, either on tomorrow's reading or the next day's reading. You can tack that on, but uh, we don't want to leave out James chapter 5. Uh, I wish I had accidentally left out the last chapter of Mark instead, because that fits right in with what we're going to talk about. Some of you will notice this as you're reading through the final chapter of Mark, chapter 16, that after you get past verse 8, either your chapter ends, and so it's the shortest chapter um, in the entire gospel, or you'll notice that there is a footnote and it takes you into uh, the remainder of the chapter. And that footnote will remind you that this is not found, this section is not found in the majority of the manuscripts that we have uh, with us, available to us. And so that's a, a controversial statement. I know some people are like, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, it's in his Bible over there, but it's not in my Bible, uh, which is correct. Uh, we like to say that Scripture is inspired and Scripture is inerrant and it's infallible and it's uh, supposed to be useful for our uh, growth and we we challenge anyone in our own tradition at least that goes against scripture but what do we do when two copies of scripture are different well this is where we need to really do our investigative work and go back and try to find out what did the original manuscripts say and this is a good opportunity to, to talk about uh, scripture in its original format and some of the things that maybe you know and maybe you don't know. Uh, what you may not know is that we don't have any originals, so that creates a problem for us as we're trying to get to the authenticity of a, a statement or the authenticity of a passage. When we go looking for uh, the originals, since we believe those are the inspired texts, uh, what not having access to those really poses a problem for us. And so what we do is we try to reconstruct what the original said to the best of our ability. And um, that happens through the copies of those originals, which are what we call manuscripts. That's what a manuscript is, is a copy of an autograph. Autograph is the language we use to describe the original writing. So they had the autographs, and then manuscripts were made from the autographs. And now we are left with dozens and dozens, hundreds of manuscripts. So by collecting these manuscripts and comparing one to another, we can sort of weed out any variations that have been um, accidentally brought into the copying process and we can sort of find a common denominator when we have a variation to see what the original would have said. Uh, and so this is why we have some variation because before modern archeology span was able to really um, get in there and discover and unearth some of the manuscripts that we've found over the last couple of hundred years, 
there was a limitation to what um, source material was available for a person who was trying to translate the Bible into a modern language. So when the King James Version Bible was being translated uh, back in the 1500s, you had a very limited supply of Greek manuscripts. Uh, in fact, Erasmus, who was responsible for putting together the Greek text that underlies the King James Version English translation, he only had one copy of Revelation. And so he had to just bank on the fact that it was accurate or close to accurate. And indeed, all of these manuscripts are close to one another. There's not major differences, but occasionally you do come across a difference or two. And so that's the case with Mark. Some of the um, sources that Erasmus had as he was putting together his Greek text, which is called the Textus Receptus, it had this section of Mark in it. Those manuscripts that he had recorded Mark 16.9 through the end of the chapter. And because of that reason, he incorporated that into his English translation or uh, the English translation that would come from the King James Version when it was translated. But now, since that point, we have found the Dead Sea Scrolls and we've found uh, numerous copies of the New Testament that uh, have been dispersed in Africa and in uh, the Byzantine area. We, we have so many manuscripts available to us now that we can make better comparisons and some of these that actually date much older than the Greek manuscripts that Erasmus had before the King James Version was put together, they actually don't include this last section in Mark. And so you have to ask yourself, which ones do we trust? Do we trust the ones that are older or do we trust the ones that are more modern? And uh, there are two schools of thought on that. Some say, well, the older they are, the closer they are to the original. Therefore, they should be trusted. And that's why most of the modern translations go with the older manuscripts. It's kind of like when you play the game telephone and um, you whisper in someone's ear a sentence and then they whisper it in someone else's ear and then they whisper it in someone else's ear. And by the time you get 10 people removed, the sentence has changed drastically. And so if you want to get back to the original, you have to kind of work your way back down the chain of people closer to where the original statement was made. But there's another school of thought that says, no, 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 that's not what happened at all. What happened is all these other texts that are older, these manuscripts that are older, they had errors in them, and so they weren't used. And since they weren't used, they got lost in libraries and buried in the dirt and all of that. And the ones that were used are the ones that wore themselves out, and so they had to uh, replicate them over and over and over again. And um, so for that reason, they people who believe that, they really cling to the Textus Receptus as being the superior Greek manuscript. Uh, I do not agree with that. I do agree personally that it's the older manuscripts, especially since there's so many of them that we can compare now uh, to one another. I believe those are the ones that should be trusted. So um, that's why I value uh, translations like the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Bible because they have taken 
these older manuscripts and use them as the base for the translation. And so that's why Mark is the way that it is. That's why you have some translations like the King James Version, including Mark 16, 9 through the remainder of the chapter and others that end at verse 8 and some that include both, but put the footnote there. That's uh, just a little lesson in Bible translation and manuscripts and autographs and all of that. Uh, but let's jump over to the book of James. James, like Mark, is an early writing in the New Testament. I told you in the last episode that Mark was probably the earliest gospel written. Well, James is most likely the earliest letter written. Um, James is written by Jesus' half-brother. It tells us in the Gospels that Jesus had brothers and sisters from uh, Joseph and Mary, and so he has some half-brothers. Obviously, Jesus' true father is God, and so that's not the father of James, but Joseph was probably likely James's father. And uh, coming in from the same household, from the same mother, uh, they are a family unit, and early on it seems that family rejected Jesus, but later on James obviously came to faith, and he rose in prominence among the early church. By the time we get to Acts chapter 15, James is presiding over a meeting of apostles and um, very influential people in the church, and he seems to be the head guru. Uh, you would think that maybe Paul or Peter would be the one conducting the meeting, but it seems that James is the one in charge, and there's often a reference back to James in Paul's writings, and he has a very strong place of a prominence and influence in the early church. James here is writing to the diaspora, which is the dispersed people of God, and he uses that term to connect people back to the Old Testament terminology, uh, which would have been a reference to those who were scattered during the uh, Syrian uh, invasion and the Babylonian conquest when Israel fell to foreign enemies, and uh, especially the northern kingdom, they weren't even taken to a homeland. Uh, they were kind of just scattered all over the place, and that was the threat to their existence as they no longer were a people. They were mixed in with people of other countries and uh, foreign uh, arrangements and marriage were made so that it kind of diluted their Jewish heritage and lineage. And so that's the idea that's behind this is we have a, a group of believers, a group of Christians who have now been scattered all over uh, the region and all over Asia Minor and into Greece because of their faith. The persecution that has risen up in pockets around these areas has driven Christians all over. And sometimes it was because of persecution. Sometimes it was just life taking people uh, to new areas uh, because this is during a time of innovation and road systems. And we start to see travel to become more readily available to the everyday man. And um, so Christianity is blossoming at this moment, and there are Christians all over the place in pockets. And so he's writing to them, and he's reminding them that they live in similar context to the people of God in the Old Testament, and that there are threats to their faith, just like there were threats to the Jewish heritage and lineage back in this time period of the Old Testament when the invaders came in. And so he's going to write about persecution. He's going to write about some of those elements. But his greatest 
probably most pointed idea in the book that I think you need to think about as you go through this text is that faith and works uh, go together and that we are looking for a real faith in our life. And it's a real faith that's pure and undefiled. He calls it pure and undefiled religion at the end of chapter one. And uh, I think the key to unlocking the book of James is this phrase that we find in James 1, 8, which says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He goes on to repeat that word un or double-minded uh, when we get to chapter 4, and he tells the people not to be double-minded. And that seems to be the real concern with James is there are people in the church or claiming to be a part of the church who say one thing but do another. They say they believe, but then they don't even trust that God can answer prayer, and they don't ask God to do things for themselves. So he challenges them in chapter 1 that if you want something, you ask for it because you got to believe that God's listening and that he wants what's best for you and he wants to give you wisdom and uh, other things that are beneficial for the kingdom of God. And so just ask. If we don't ask, we show that we have a lack of belief, even though we say that we do believe. He gets into uh, the fact that we need to be hear or doers of the word and not hearers only, people that just listen to the word, but they don't do it. There's inconsistency there. In chapter two, he talks about how faith with outworks is dead. And many have said, well, how does this go hand in hand with Paul's um, teaching of justification by faith alone? I don't think James is preaching that you're saved by your works. I think what he's saying is that true, genuine faith does work. And I don't think that is irreconcilable with Paul's teaching. I think those two go together, that yes, indeed, our Salvation is wrapped up in faith and faith alone, but real faith has real consequences and real significance, and that is seen in what we do. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. And so if we really believe, if we really love Jesus, then there will be a result of that, and that is the works that we see. There will be more consistency between what we say and what we do. And that's why James challenges us on our tongues, not to be too quick to speak, and that the tongue is set on the fire of hell, because too often it's our tongue that is not contained and not disciplined, and it is what is more inconsistent in our lives than anything else. Uh, and so it, it may boast greater things than what we are actually able to back up with our actions. And so we need to hesitate a little bit before we speak. And uh, he gets into who should be a teacher, who should not be a teacher, and, and several other things. But I think if you take all of the teaching of James, chapter 1 through 5, not 4, but 5, you will find that the key to it all is that we have an authentic and consistent faith that matches what we say and confess to what we do and live out. Now that's all for today, and we'll catch you on the next episode of 90 Days New.